Two girls talking. You know what that means. It's time to talk. What's going on in the world? How about your business? How about your life? Let's talk it out. Two girls talking. Hey everyone, it's Anna. And it's Ashley, and today we are about to get uncomfortable. That's right, listeners, buckle up. We're talking about racism, and we're about to get real here. We're going to be learning from two experts about what it truly means for us white women to be an ally to people of color. We're joined today with Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki Graham, creators of the award-winning social justice podcast, Dear White Women, and authors of the new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. A graduate of Harvard and Columbia Law School, Mishasha has been a practicing litigator for over 15 years and is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the legal profession as well as in her communities. Sarah, also a Harvard grad and a very and vocal about this effort in her community as well, is a TEDx speaker, a writer, and a life coach. Sarah and Mishasha, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So excited to be here. Oh, we are. Oh, this. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. Um, I'm like, where do we get started? Because I have a lot I want to ask you both. Um, yeah. But let's let's start with my uh, one question. I have is why do we need to get uncomfortable talking about racism? So you know, as white women, I'll admit it can feel very scary. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be a loving supporter and 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 an ally to people of color. Uh, and I know Anna does as well. And Anna has you know her own background that she can right. share. So yeah. I'm curious, you know, why do we need to get comfortable about talking uncomfortable talking about racism? Or maybe why is it so uncomfortable for? Yeah, us? why is it? Yeah, true, that too. I mean, I think there's two different layers to this. The first one is that the question sort of underlies the assumption that white people don't have a race, but racism is bad for all of us, right? right. I mean, I think yes. there's all these, there's a great book, The Sum of Us, which Misasha can talk about the amazing pool example later on if you want to, but you know, there's so many programs out there, for example, that that show that racism affects all of us. Like government programs actually help all people and affirmative action, for example, is, is the biggest beneficiary of it is, is white women. You know, if we don't talk about race and and have diverse communities, you are basically suppressing the innovation you have. I think there's been study after study that talk about how the more diverse your company or your executives are, the better your bottom line is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on top of all that, there's this extra layer of like, I think white women are very familiar with this idea of perfectionism, but this idea of dehumanizing ourselves to the point of seeking perfection is, yes. I think every single one of us can relate to that sort of pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that it's possible to engage in these conversations without realizing that all of these forces are at play that affect our lives. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we all need to be talking about it. It's not just a conversation for, for one part of the population. Right. Right. So I guess this leads to my other question question is that, you know, you say we, we all need to be talking about it. And I know in your book, you, you know, you talk about Black Lives Matter. And when that and that movement started, I felt called as a business owner to be talking about it and do something. And so it comes, the question is, you know, what can I do to help? And that's a big question that us white women found ourselves asking these past two years. And I, I truly feel like often I don't do enough. Like I, at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, I launched um, a year long book club where we focused on black fiction and nonfiction authors each month. 
And I still didn't even feel like that was enough after a year of reading and learning. And so I'm just wondering what more can we be doing to be a supportive ally other than reading books and launching book clubs? Because that seems to be what everyone did. So I love this question. And I'm actually going to change the question a little because I think the question should actually be, what can I do? Right. Mm. I, I don't I think when you add to help, it really creates this divide between like and and that concept that racism is not a problem for white people, that mm. it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect white people. I think that the more that we think about how it does actually affect all of us, the more urgent this seems, right? If we really want to change the future of what is coming, then we all have to act. But, you know, and I think that the key there is acting, right? You, you, um, Ashley, you were talking about, you know, the book clubs and, and um, the reading and the learning. And I think all of that is really important, right? And our book is really mm -hmm. premised on these three pillars, like listening to personal narratives, learning mm -hmm. the history that we mm -hmm. definitely were not taught equally in schools about mm -hmm. our, our nation, right. and then yeah. acting. And I think that's the key piece that we um, people get yeah. hung up on because they are, they're not sure what to do. Um, but there's so many little things, right. That doesn't involve, you know, maybe being on the front lines of a protest, but little things that we can each do in our daily lives and the intentional choices that we make that continue to propel us to be anti-racist, right. Cause anti-racism is really about the action. Um, right. not so what just are the belief. some of those things? So that's a great question. I think that for example, um, you know, interrupting the conversations that happen that someone says a racist joke, right? And I think that a lot of times if we're not prepared for that, we just freeze, right? We freeze yep. and we think about all the things we could have said later that we we didn't say. But there's something simple that you can say right in that moment, which is, what did you mean by that, right? And mm -hmm. just the simple act mm -hmm. of questioning, not, you know, getting in someone's face necessarily, but you're asking a question. And right. so maybe that person sort of doubles down on like, yeah, I meant exactly this. And then you have that is a different conversation, right? And you have to decide how you're going to handle that. But maybe that question just gives them a moment to say like, wait, what did I mean by that? And right, so yeah. in that moment, right, you you are actually sort of educating in that and, and you can have a conversation and it removes that defensiveness that I think we often are, you know, addressing as because people are so defensive um, about when we talk about race and racism. And so, it, you know, the first thing that anybody talks about is immediately you can bring up any kind of race, even if you're somebody who wants to try to practice or is practicing to be an anti-racist. Um, the first thing that comes up are your defenses. The very first thing. It's a very, very um, personal thing. So I want to kind of get personal with both of you because you are both mixed raced, Asian American. Um, there's a lot of anti-Asian hate right now. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know if it's on the rise, but it's certainly more in the news. Um, I, I am a Mexican American. Um, my, my grandparents and great grandparents were from Mexico. Um, so I, I understand it on a, on a different type of level, uh, even from Ashley and even from you guys, but I want to hear about your personal stories. Um, especially when it comes right now to the anti-Asian hate. Yeah, I think it's interesting because while I so appreciate the media covering it, it makes it sound like anti-Asian hate is new. And when mm -hmm. you think about the 
the immigration policies that were implemented in the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first time that the government limited immigration from a certain area of the world against mm -hmm. Asian people, and how that changed the dynamic of who has shown up in this country at what time from Asia in, in our history. You know, there's. It, it, I think it's it's important to put it in the context of Asian people have often not been welcome here in this country mm -hmm. since the beginning of their time immigrating mm -hmm. to this country. Mm -hmm. um, and then when the whole linkage between what we're going through with this pandemic and this idea of like, and I'm going to air quote the China flu and the blaming again, really picked up more active overt forms of violence and violent hate against Asian people. I think that's when the news caught onto it. But people of Asian descent have often grappled with their identity and felt othered in this society mm. before this latest wave of hate. You know, that said, I mean, I have to say my mom is Japanese and I was afraid. And she lives in New York and I was really afraid when she would go out to go to the supermarket that she sort of be careful, yeah. you know, and, and that fear that your parent might be targeted based on how they look, mm -hmm. plus they're elderly, right? Mm -hmm. You're kind of like, oh, that sucks. And so, and, and I would hear stories, even that the media were not reporting. So people, like, it hit the airwaves at the beginning. And then I was still hearing personal stories of family members of friends in New York getting knocked down at the MTA, like buying a card and like hitting their head and having to go get a scan. Zero news coverage. So when we would bring it up, people would be like, oh, that's still happening. And again, yeah. most recently with, with, unfortunately in New York, another Asian woman being killed by being thrown in front of the train. It's making headlines again, but it has never gone away since this whole pandemic started. And I think that speaks to the importance of how our words matter, because had we not started with this idea of the China flu and an Asian country causing you know, discomfort and, and disease in America, I don't think we would have had this violent uptick necessarily show up. Mm. Do yeah. you think this is an America problem or is this a world problem? I just, I mean, like, cause we're really just in the United States, we see it happening here. And from some, for someone who was raised here, I wasn't born here, but I was raised here in a military family. And I, I always wonder is like, is it like this? Is racism as prevalent elsewhere in the world as it is here in the United States? Um, yes, but I think here we have a foundation of our nation, you know, being founded on really slavery, <clears throat> excuse mm -hmm. me, slavery, right? And the concepts that um, so directly based on unequal treatment from the start that it's it's different. I think like when it appears, for example, in England, that that racism exists there, it's more like colonialism, right? That has, right. and you know, how, how people have, yeah. you know, sort of settled, right? And, and taken control of various groups, right? And so the, that power dynamic, which is really what racism is, right? Like preferring yeah. one group of people to others simply based on the color of their skin exists in different places and it exists through xenophobia and other places as well. But I think we have a unique situation here um, also because we have such a diverse population here in this country where we can see it happen on so many different levels. Well, let's talk about white privilege. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. Let's talk about yeah. that. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, like, I think for me as a white woman, I'm just like, I'll never be able to relate because I, ca I can't physically. But so, can, yeah. 
can I just push that a little bit though? Because Please. I think that's why, I mean, our whole platform is called Dear White Women. It's, it's yeah. you know, kind of a clear title. I think the reason we are reaching out to women in particular is because even if you can't experience, you know, empathize with that experience or sympathize with that experience uh, on a racial level, on a gender level, you sort of understand, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. I mean, as a woman, you know, you don't go jogging at dusk or twilight without being a little extra careful, or you maybe don't wear yeah. that skirt that short by, you know, without sort of a voice in the back of your head. You sort of understand this sense of being told what you can or cannot do and your safety threatened based on how you show up in the world. And that's what we're really hoping to tap into is this idea mm -hmm. that that feeling of understanding that you don't feel free to be who you are is something that women can very much relate to. I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you are, and, and that's interesting, and I and I, I totally agree with you, um, Sarah, on that. But do you think that uh, obviously the four of us here are women, but um, is it easier to talk about this with women than it is to try to engage men in the conversation as well? And I say that only because you are, you know, your 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 podcast, your book is Dear White Women, and you just said that you were focusing on women. I think we really focused on women also because of the power that women hold that are large yeah. that has largely been undervalued, right? Like I think society Absolutely. has told us in so many different ways, right? That we don't have this power that we actually know that we do. And in, and that power exists in so many different spheres, right? At home, at work, and, you know, in book clubs, at the PTA, like so many circles that we move through that we control with our wallets, right? Spending power, Absolutely. really. Um, I mean, women are the ones who make a majority yes. of the household decisions. Yep, what exactly. we buy, where we go, the type of food <laughs> that we eat, Exactly. Um, so if you if you're doing making those decisions and you're like, well, what if I make a different decision? Right. Like, what if mm -hmm. I ask the question, why are we reading only books by white authors in our book club? Right. Or why do why? How about if I ask this question, like, why aren't we learning about Asian hi American history in our schools? Right. When I go to that next PTA meeting or I start asking why and white women being white in America can show up and use their voice sometimes in different ways um, and be mm -hmm. heard in different ways than others. And so. I think when we're when we have this platform and are talking to women because we know that power, right, that women have. And we think like if we can tap into that and really harness it like that ability to change and change for the future and make that really that equitable society that we're looking for, like women hold that power. So we are like so that. hopeful that we can mm -hmm. all get there together. It's, I mean, you're, like you're hearing that gives me chills and is so inspiring because I'm like, yes, it's so true. I mean, I do feel like we as women um, will change the world. And, and I, I, I understand fully why, you know, you're really wanting to target, to target white women. So I'm, I'm curious now, like what, like for someone other than like, okay, buy the book because it's amazing, <laughs> it's actionable. Like wh where can our listeners get started? Like if they're like, I don't know what step to take. And you had just heard me, um, Sarah, I was like, yeah, sometimes I just feel like I don't know how I know what to do because I can't relate. And you were like, oh, girl, you can relate. You're a woman. <laughs> and 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 I love that. So like what what do you tell our listeners when like because that was so much of how I felt in the Black Lives Matter movement. I was like, 
what can I do? What, like, what actionable things can I do? And what I'm hearing from you, Mishasha, is like, you know, start asking why, showing up and using your voice. I love that. So what are some other tips that you can share too? I mean, I think it's important to actually ask yourself, what are the stereotypes of white people, right? Because if you are calling people black or you're calling people Asian, well, it's important to be able to say, well, I am white if you're white. Yeah. And what does that mean? How has that shaped your lens? What is your understanding of race? What, if you're really honest with yourself, what is your reaction when you're in your car in a parking lot and a black person walks by? Are you the person who's locking their door? What yeah. do those things say about you? Just like, I would spend some time not judging yourself, but continuing to do that why and noticing game with your own lens. And then I think after you feel a little bit more comfortable with how sort of you've been raised, because a lot of it is just how we've been raised, right? I'm not blaming anyone. The country is segregated based on migration patterns. History yeah. of this country is taught totally differently in different states. Like yeah. just meet yourself where you're, where you're at and, and think about what your spheres of influence are. Sorry, go ahead. I, I, we, we fight about how it's taught. Yeah. How, how the history yeah. is taught. Because that's what it is, right? His story. Um, when it should not be. Mm -hmm. When it should be our story. Um, the world story. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And when to that point, Sarah, um, and Mishasha, you too. How do we talk to our kids about yeah. race? And racism, you know, as as actually alluded, you know, I, and I told you, I, I'm Mexican American. My kids are uh, of mixed. My husband is white, and my kids, if you looked at them, I don't think that you. And Ashley, you know them. I don't think that you looked at them, and the first thing you think is, okay, they're Latinos. I don't think so. Do you? I mean, you've seen no. them. Yeah, um, you don't think that. No. And when I when I ask my kids about that, now understand that my kids both uh, are speak, learning how to speak Spanish. They've been up around. They've been around the Mexican culture all of their lives. Their their favorite foods are Mexican. It's just the culture that I grew up in. So it's the culture that I pass on to them. And I don't know anything really about my husband's culture, and he likes my culture. So we say <laughs> we stay in my world more than we stay <laughs> in my mother in law and father in law's world. But. Um, you know, I've often, I've, I've asked them, I've said, you know, do your friends know that you're Mexican? Because they have a lot of friends. We're, we're in the DMV. We've got a huge, huge. Super diverse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really Great. diverse here. They have friends who are kosher, who are Muslim, who are vegetarian, you know, it, run the gambit. Ever since they've been little, they have friends who have two moms. Um, and I asked them, I said, do, you, do your friends know, you know, that you're Mexican? half Mexican. And they say, no. And I say, what do they say when you, um, tell them that? And, and, uh, they always look at me and they say, well, I guess they look at me when I say, you know, yeah, I'm Mexican. They look at me and they're like, oh yeah, now I can see it. It was always there, you know, they just didn't notice it. So how do we talk to our kids about race? And I'll be honest with you too. I, even somebody with me, you were talking about stereotypes, you know, I'm, I can be just as guilty of it as any other white person. We we all can be, right? Yeah. It's the system. Right. I think it's, it's, it's baked into like the air we breathe in this society and the way that news media is relayed. So, so that's where it's so important for every single one of us, however we show up in this world, to ask ourselves those questions just to get to know ourselves better. I mean, it's a good thing for people to know themselves psychologically anyway, right? right. It's a good thing for us to, to question. Because if we're looking at our values, if we're looking at our identities and the things we love – we often forget to include race in that, but it's such a critical part of, of our identity. Why not? 
throw that in there as part of the self-interrogation. Mm-hmm. But the kid thing is interesting because I think it depends on how your kids present. And my kids are one quarter Japanese, three quarters white. And I ask them, how, what, what do you check off on those forms at school? And when they said Asian and white, I like did this huge fist pump. I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, um, you know, my mom's story has passed down, but the world sees them as white. They, they present right. as white. And I think, you know, when the kids are little, I think it's so important because uh, to talk about race because kids give you opportunity to do it all the time from the, the crayons mm-hmm. that now exist, you know, and the, and the coloring and, and you can pull up the sleeves and compare your skin tone. Like there's so many things and opportunities for us to talk about difference. And race is one of those differences. So we shouldn't shy away from it the same way you talk about that kid has blonde hair, the kid, you know, is in a wheelchair. Like we, we notice and we want to teach our kids about the world around us. So we want them to like appreciate their power of observation. You don't want to quiet them if they say that kid has darker skin. You don't want to shame them. You don't want to say, cause they are observing it. You don't want to make right. them think they're, they're observing something weird or anything at all. It just, it is one of those differences. Um, but I think as kids get older, I think the same way you want to, you know, cultivate their sense of identity, it's great to ask them about their race and what they notice about other races and introduce the concept mm-hmm. of racism as they get into sort of elementary school level, because by the time kids are sort of, I don't know, second, third grade, 10 years old-ish, they're, the n-word is being thrown around in elementary school right and and if we don't if we haven't already primed our kids to talk about race and if we haven't introduced the concept of racism they're not going to know why white kids or non-black people should never ever ever use the n-word whether it's in song or to their friends or anything so we have to be able to tell them that so that we can teach them that n-word for that one time and tell them there's no other word that will cut a human being down like this word Mm -hmm. that is filled with a history of hate Mm -hmm. so I think it's it, it, it's comes in stages, but we just want to keep talking with them about it openly. Right. I think right. Um, also, so my husband's black, so my kids are black, Japanese, and white. So they are seen by the world as black. Um, mm-hmm. And I hear a lot that people are afraid to talk about race or racism, right? Because it it is uncomfortable and they're not sure what to mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, and in our house, we talk about race because for survival, right? Because I want my kids to come home each day. And so uh, it is very important for me um, that they do that, right? And so um, I think that we need to get over the the idea that this is going to be comfortable at some point, right? I think it is always going to be uncomfortable, but it, and it is also not going to be this perfect conversation that we have. Like I never have a perfect conversation with my kids about race and racism. And I think that that's that sort of expectation that we have that, you know, we should be able to have this conversation. We'll just check it off and we'll go on with our lives. And, um, and I think that to be able to have this conversation, and I was just talking to someone who was talking about how parents don't know what the kids are saying in school. And I think a lot of that has to do with the openness that we present at home, right? Are we open to having these conversations? When a kid asks us that uncomfortable question about race or, you know, why do we only have one month for black history, right? Like we can, you know, shut that question down or we can say like, thank you so much for asking that question. Like, you know what? I I don't know the history of black history month in our country. Like, let me go look that up and come back and talk to you. Like, I, I think that 
the, then that way, if the kids are older, you involve them in this question and ask further questions like, why do we only have one month for Black history? Isn't Black history the same as American history? And I, I think you can build on that. But I think the most important part is to really keep that conversation line open, right? So that mm-hmm. you are able to influence, you know, you want to share your views on race and racism with your kids, I think, fundamentally, right. rather than have them learn it on TikTok or have this, you know, whatever is being taught to them at school be the dominant, you know, narrative that they're going to carry with them. Right. Something you said, me, Sasha, um, really interested me. You said that uh, you talk about um, racism with your kids because your children are, 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 are present as black or the world sees them as black. My two youngest godsons are three quarters black and a fourth white. Their father who was my husband's uh, old, old roommate, their father once said to me, have you ever had that talk with my son? Have you had that talk with your son about, you know, uh, what happens if he gets pulled over by a cop? And it, it hit me and I had to tell him no, because you know what, my kid doesn't look like that. And it, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. parents of kids who are not white have different types of conversations with than parents. I mean, they do. Yeah. They do. And it didn't hit me that I didn't have that conversation. I did not long after I had that conversation with my friend. <laughs> I did. But, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you didn't have a kid who looked like your kid, you wouldn't have that conversation. And perhaps that's a conversation we should all have. I think that's true because what if your kid does have a black friend? You would right. want your kid to know that they shouldn't act out to potentially put their black friend in trouble if they're in the car at the same time too. Like you want these kids, like all these children are growing up in this society together. We are influenced by each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you want your kid to have a safer world. And in order to do that, you want their friends to also have a safer world. And so Mm -hmm. it's so important for us to remember that in order to be, even if they don't look a certain way, they can be better friends. Right. By knowing what their friends are going through that, that idea of empathy and understanding that, all our experiences are not one and the same. We all live very different experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that same way of thinking can be applied. I think one of my kids a long time ago came home saying, so-and-so in the class is wearing the same clothes and he's sort of smelly, but he's not changing his clothes all week long. And it, and started to go down this idea of like shaming. And I we stopped it and we're like, well, what do you think might be going on in, in their lives that that might be the case? Can you come up with like three different scenarios? What do you think might be happening? just to break open this idea of one narrative that, that, that my kid's judgment was the only way that that must be. And therefore she's going to be okay judging this friend. Yeah. So we can practice these conversations and the, the yeah. skills in yep. so many different scenarios. Yep. Right. Right. That's interesting. That's in- because, you know, I guess, I, I, I guess, um, had that happened when I was growing up, my first thought would have been, she's stinky. And so she's probably not good enough to be my friend. You know, I I think that that is what I probably would have thought. I don't know that it would have had anything to do with with their race, but I certainly know that's what I would have thought. (laughs) She, she can't be my friend. I I would not have put it in, in a, in the context of maybe she's going through some hard times at home. Yeah. I would not, I, I wouldn't have put it. I know I wouldn't have, I know I wouldn't have. I also, I mean, and you're also going back to, you know, just becoming an ally. I think this is something that's really interesting is that um, a stat that says that more than 80% of white employees view themselves as allies to women of color at work. 
but only 45% of black women and 55% of Latinas agree. So what is up with that difference in perception and what can we do to change it? I think there's a difference between intent and impact, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of times, I think we hear a lot like, oh, well, you know, I I thought that what I was doing was this, but the impact that it has on the recipient is something completely different. And I think that a lot of times people, and we've heard this from a lot of white people, right? Oh, I'm not racist. Like I, you know, treat everyone equally. And there's a difference between doing that and then actively advocating for the black woman that you see getting shut down in meetings, right? And actively asking, why does our hiring committee or our, you know, search committee only have white people on it? Or why does our, Mm -hmm. why is our C-suite full of white men? I think like, there, so you can have a lot of thoughts and believe that you are an ally, but I think it's again that action piece, right? That that takes you from, you know, what you what you think to be true to what you are doing to be anti-racist and to really be an ally for for these well, people. Well, let me play a little devil's advocate then on that side. The if you don't know, I mean, if if you don't know that you need to take the steps to to do this. Are you racist? I mean, if I'm friends, let's say I'm a white woman and I'm friends with you and I I don't treat you any differently than any other of my friends who happen to be of any other colors, but you don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe I don't advocate for you enough. Maybe I'm not a, a greater ally. I think I am, but maybe I'm not. How do I know that I'm not? And how do you get me to understand that I'm not? I mean, Sasha, this reminds me of the Beverly Tatum example yeah. and defining racism. I know. I, I think that there is a difference, right, between being not racist and anti-racist, um, which okay, is, I think, that. the and nexus it, I, of I think, your question. I think that needs to be explained. Yeah. Because so I Beverly, really do think that people think it's the same thing. Yeah. And, and Sarah's right. Beverly Tatum has this great example, right? And basically her example is one of a moving walkway, you know, the kind of like airports where you get through the terminal faster. And so mm-hmm. the walkway moves in one direction, right? And that is the direction that society is moving naturally. And that's towards racism because that's been baked into our society. That's how we move. That's how we, our systems function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone's on this walkway, So if you're actively walking in the direction that that walkway is going, then you are an overt racist, right? You are doing super racist things, um, you know, out there in society and actively acting on them, right? Then there's this someone who's standing on the walkway, facing in the direction that the walkway is going, but not walking. Okay, that person is also believing in the racist policies and systems that we have in place, might not be out there, you know... um, acting, you know, not at the Capitol building for January 6th, right, but is still believing, right, in those things. Then this is the tricky one, all right? You have a person who's standing on the walkway, but they're facing the opposite direction, okay? So they are looking in the direction of equity, of anti-racism, but they're standing on the walkway, so they're still being pulled in the direction of society, which is moving towards racism, So that's the person who says, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Um, You know, I, um, I, I believe that everyone is equal. 
I don't see color, right? That I think that's where that person is, right? But if you are actively trying to change the way that society is going, and again, that direction is racism because of our systems, you are the person who's on the walkway walking in the opposite direction. So you are actively taking steps, however big, it doesn't, you don't have to be running on that walkway, you're walking on that walkway towards this vision where we can be actually equal. And so... I think that that, uh, like, I like that visual because it 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 helps define what is that weird area where I think people are like, but I have these great thoughts and I firmly believe this in my heart, but I'm not out there asking the questions. I'm not out there raising my voice, and it doesn't it doesn't again it doesn't have to be at your you know at a big protest march, right? But I'm not out out there questioning like. The people that come over to my house, like okay, in a non-COVID period, or like the people you know that are that are around our dinner table, do they all look like me? Right? Are my kids' friends all white? Right? If my kid is white, yeah. Like who 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 do we invite to our book club? You know, and, and I think yeah. those are the questions that we keep asking and keep asking, and those are the steps that are moving us towards that equity. So hopefully that made sense. It was kind of a long explanation. Yes, I'm never going to take that moving walkway again, just FYI. <laughs> in the opposite direction. <laughs> but going back to earlier, you know, you had this question about um, that stat and the discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that I remember taking away from, from reading around that study was this idea of mentorship and and using your privilege to maybe even go beyond mentorship to advocacy, right? Oh, there's this opportunity that I heard about. I'm going to take my mentee and actively raise them for consideration is really looking out for one another. And that is one of the biggest things that from that study, I remember women of color saying that they would wish more people would do for them mm-hmm. is give them those opportunities. And a sponsor, right? It's not even a mentor. Yes, it's that's, a sponsor. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. Thank to, you. To be that person. Ultimately, if we... I think having relationships with a whole diverse group of people helps give you a reason why you should actually continue to care, right? It gives you that motivation. And so when we have opportunities to build community for our kids or our families, like who are the doctors you're hiring? Who are the dentists? Who, who is in your community that you're already looking for whatever services you can start building different relationships Mm -hmm. than perhaps the default ones you may have gone to before you started thinking about building an array of friendships and and professional relationships in the communities that you're already in. It's so true. I we went through um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion training here um, at my company, Nardi, and you know one of the first things that um, the speaker did was like make a list of like the ten people closest to you and just what color are they? And I was like, oh my god, mine are all white women, um, other than my husband who's a white male, and it really made me. It made me feel very ignorant, but also awakened me to like, oh, to your point, like I thinking of like my friends and the doctors that I hire and like the tutors that I hire for my kid, whoever they're t- like, it just, it makes you think so much further beyond that. Um, I'm gr- grateful that for that awakening, but I'm also very embarrassed to admit it too. And and then that, as long as you own that, that's like your emotional processing of the right. thoughts and the realities around yeah. that, right? Because you don't you don't have to feel shame. Like yeah, I, you know, like I said before, communities are very segregated. And and in in the book we cite this study that talks about uh, people looking at their closest circles of friends and all yep. the different ways, like whether it's um, socioeconomic difference, education level, religion, whatever. Race happens to be the biggest divider, the biggest place where you have 
homogenous groups. Mm-hmm. And that is where we're at. Like mm-hmm. if we see that, okay, how do you feel about that? And what do you want to do about it next? What wow. are the, what are the baby steps? Cause forcing an instant best friendship with a, someone who just based on their, their <laughs> right. race right. is not what you want to do either. But what are some things you can do that feel like natural steps? I, I always think about the story in our community of a black mom who said, look, I do all the things that the white moms do. Okay. I, she's like, I am on the PTA. I head up the Girl Scout committee. I am a room mom. I am showing up, smiling, hold the door open. I have never once been invited to book club. Ugh. And so like, there are ways to look around at your community already and sort of see what opportunities you're missing mm. to get to know people who are already there. That's such great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Look around at your community. Look for those opportunities. Um, You know, I'd love for you to also share, you know, just your vision and dreams for your book, Dear White Women. You know, just what inspired you to write this, knowing that you had the podcast and like, what is your hope for, you know, women who do read it? What do you want to see happen? I feel like Sarah's going to make me tell my story. (laughs) Your story. Do you have capacity to tell your story? Because it's a powerful (laughs) one. Okay. Um, So, you know, that's a great question. And when we were writing this book, which was in 2020, um, so there was just a few things going on in 2020, um, Sarah was like, (laughs) uh, we had one of those best friend calls where it was like, Sarah asked me, okay, but we've got a lot going on because we were homeschooling our kids. You know, it was, we were heading into the 2020 election. We had the podcast. She's like, okay, tell me why we should write this book now. And I said the first thing that came to my mind, kind of like those speed round questions where it's like, tell us the first thing that comes to your mind, go. And what I said Mm -hmm. was my truth and still is to my my truth to this day, which was I'm trying to save my kids' lives. Mm. And so to your question as to what would I, what would we like to see for this book? Like I have always said, because people have asked, like, how do you measure success with this book? Um, And for me, it's if we sell one copy that goes to someone who reads it or has a conversation with someone else who has that ability in that moment to to decide whether my boys live or die, right? Mm -hmm. Or someone else who looks exactly like my boys and they make a different decision based on this book. That is a success. Like I will consider that done. We are good. Um, I I feel 100% good about that because it is so personal and so granular, right? Like these are tiny, they might seem like tiny conversations, one-off conversations. And I think that's when people think I'm not doing enough, but those conversations could save people's lives very clearly. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. the whole like why behind the book. Well, and on those, on that note, I, I feel like I mean, you've both sort of taken a look at it. It's one of these books that makes this conversation accessible. And I think it gives you hope for making small changes. Like it it gives you the confidence to try something out. Or if you're mm-hmm. in this situation, in this new situation, you're like, oh, I could do it this. I, you know, so I do want everyone to recommend this book. I want reviews. I want people to to share it with their communities because I think it fits into this gap that we have had until this point in some of these books where they've been very intellectual and academic and theoretical, which is so powerful. And I think people were asking, what do we do? And I want people to start taking more action. So the more we can get this Mm -hmm. book out into people's hands to 
start that ripple effect of change in their own communities, the better chance we have to continue to save more lives. Right. Well, okay. Speaking of that, ladies, um, we know about your, your book, Dear White Women. Tell us about your podcast, how they can listen to it, what the name of it is. The podcast is Dear White Women. We are on all the podcast platforms, often uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Those are, are the most popular places to find it, but you can always find all of our information at dearwhitewomen.com okay. where all the episodes are also lodged. Fabulous. It's wonderful. Thank you guys so much. I have never met you guys, and I am so um, grateful for this conversation. Thank you guys so much. And for anyone listening, you can go and get Dear White Women, go and get it, start the conversation. And remember the message that you learned today. These conversations can save lives, which is so important. Um, Just grateful to have you both here today, Sarah and Mishasha. Thank you so much. You're changing the world. changes matter. And I'm just just so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you, as always, for joining. See you in two weeks.